Well, today does mark our one-year anniversary of when we launched the incubator. And I'm just curious, who was here a year ago at that, uh, at that launch of the incubator? Just raise your hand. Wow, it's awesome. Well, praise the Lord for his goodness, his faithfulness. It is right and fitting to talk about the faithfulness of the Lord today, uh, to be able to be here a year later, still worshiping Jesus and, uh, and growing. And so I'm excited to preach uh, this text for us this morning. And so let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer. God, we do pause and give you praise for your greatness and for your faithfulness to us. God, we declare as a body that all of our hope is in you. And Lord, I do pray as we turn to your word, God, I specifically pray for those who are currently in a season of deep sorrow. Lord, I pray that your word would comfort them, God, that you would draw them near to you. Lord, we give you praise that you do draw near to the brokenhearted, Lord. So we do pray that your word would go forth in power this morning. Lord, I do pray for your help, God, that you'd help me to be clear and that you'd help me to make much of Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've all had that experience of running into someone that we haven't seen in years, you know, whether it was, you know, seeing them at Chick-fil-A or seeing them at the mall or, you know, maybe someone that we graduated with in high school or college and running into them years later. We've all had that really fun but terribly awkward encounter. And, uh, you know, we've all been there where we see that person and, uh, and we immediately come up with all kinds of reasons to avoid them. And to avoid that three-minute kind of awkward encounter of, hey, how are you? What's new? Nothing. Okay, see ya. We've all had that encounter. It's okay to admit. Um, But have you ever had the experience where you've run into somebody that you haven't seen in years, and yet you barely recognize them? Where you see them, and you're like, "I, I think I know who that is. And so you start talking, and they say their name, and you're like, oh, yeah, I remember you. But they're so different that it causes you to ask the question, or maybe say it in your mind of, what happened, right? It's the same person, it's the same name, but they're completely different. Well, that feeling, or better yet, that question of what happened is exactly what Lamentations 3 should cause us to ask. That sense of something has taken place that has altered the whole experience of what Israel is going through in this chapter. Now, Lamentations 3 is the climax and the height of the whole book. Lamentations 3 gives us some general themes of what's already happened in 1 and 2, but there's a heightened intensity to it. It expresses the deep emotion of the experiences of God's people and what they're feeling, what they're going through. We have some pretty disturbing images in this chapter, and yet a wonderful picture of God's faithfulness, of his unceasing mercy and his steadfast love. But what you need to know about this chapter and and really how this chapter is laid out is the first 20 verses, we have this personal description of lament, this personal and intense description of suffering. And then verses 21 through 33, we have the amazing picture of God's faithfulness. We have, you know, the famous verse of his mercies are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. And then verses 34 through 66 We have more of the same description, the same situation, the same scenario, and yet something's changed. 
Something's different. There's a different lens by which the situation is being described. There's a different outlook and a different perspective of the same scenario of suffering. And it should cause us to really ask the question, what happened? What, what took place in verses 21 through 33 that has led to this different outlook and this different perspective of the same suffering? And what I want us to see this morning is the what happened in verses 21 through 33 has the ability to further teach us the language of lament. That lament, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, gives voice to our pain. Lament gives voice to our suffering, whether innocent suffering or guilty suffering. That what happened in verses 21 through 33 has the power to help us navigate through pain and through suffering. It, it helps us to anchor us into the truth of who God is. That I believe that as we dive into this passage this morning, it has the ability to help us not only get through suffering, but actually to grow and thrive through it. And so before we look at verses 21 through 33, I want to just set the context of what's going on in verses 1 through 20, and then briefly look at verses 34 through 66. So first, let's look at the personal reflection of suffering. This passage draws our attention to the key themes of rejection, loss, and lament in a more intensified way. Look at verse 1, we see God's anger. Verse 2, God's rejection. Verse 3, we see God's judgment, the, the feeling that God is now an enemy in verses 10 through 13. And then we see the suffering that follows in verses 15 through 16 and 19 and 20. Notice the language in these first seven verses. We we get this picture of God's judgment, and, and he starts to articulate it and its impact both internally and externally. In verse 1, we have the rod of his wrath. This implies the full strength of God's anger and the severity and overwhelming nature of his response. Verse 2, he has driven and brought me into darkness. This speaks to the painful experience of feeling abandoned. Verse 3, God has turned against me his hand the whole day long. Instead of feeling the gentle and rescuing hand of God, he now experiences the punishing hand of God. Verse 4, we see the entirety of his body. It feels the effect of it. He says, my flesh and my skin, my bones. In verse 5, the totality of the impact of the judgment of God is expanded on. And then verse 7, he feels surrounded feels walled in, weighed down. And then verse 9, he, his way has been blocked by a heavy stone. Notice, notice the picture that he's painting for us. That his personal experience really echoes the horror of the captured city. It seems that God is absent. That his presence is felt only in a negative way. It seems as though nothing and no one can rescue him from the prison of misery. He continues and feels the bodily assault of being dragged and mangled in verse 11. Verse 12, we see God being described as the archer taking target practice, and he is the target. His kidneys and teeth are assaulted, verse 13 and 16. He feels hopeless. Well, not only is he impacted physically, but look at verse 8. He feels like his prayers are not being heard, feels mocked in verse 14. He's filled with bitterness. 
in verse 19. And this culminates in a downcast soul in verse 20. But it doesn't stop there. Jump down to verse 34 through 36 and on. He feels like a prisoner. He's crushed, feeling like he has no rights. Verse 45, feeling like scum and garbage. They are filled with terror and panic because of their enemies. Verse 46 through 48, and then he feels lost in verse 54. And yet, if you look at verses 34 through 66, something's different. There's a different perspective. There's a, there's a different feel to the way that he's describing his suffering. I don't want you to miss this. Look at verse 39. Look at verses 55 through 56. Let me read verse 58 for us just to highlight the difference. Verse 58 reads this way. It says, you have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. Notice he starts talking to God. You, not he has, not he has, but you. There, there's a different feel in this section here. And my question is, what happened? How did he go from verse 18 saying that he's lost all hope to verse 58 saying that you have redeemed my life? What was the change? What took place? I would argue that he's, he's learning the language of lament, that he's beginning to see what's underneath and what's driving the pain and the sorrow and the suffering. And if you look at verse 21, he says, but this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. He calls to mind. He remembers something. He, he stops and, and, and he meditates on something that changes his whole outlook, that changes his whole perspective on his suffering. He thinks to himself, oh yeah, this is this is what I'm going through, and this is who God is. Therefore, I will have hope. And we've all had that experience before, maybe on a more superficial level. We've all had that experience of going through something, and yet we remember something, and it changes our outlook or experience. You know, we've all sat through Friday night traffic, and we're sitting there, and we start to get frustrated that no one's moving, and we want to get home, or we become, you know, increasingly annoyed. And then we remember that oh yeah, tomorrow's Saturday, I don't have to work. And it, and it somehow changes our perspective. It changes what we're going through in that moment. Or maybe you've been with the kids all morning and they're just so cranky and, and, and frustrated and, and you're just on your last nerve. And then you remember that nap time is in 20 minutes, the great Savior. And it just changes your whole outlook. It changes your perspective. Well, think about this for a moment. This individual the city has been burned to the ground. That he has forgotten what happiness is like. That he is walled in on every side. That, that darkness surrounds him. He's, he's not just sitting in traffic. He's, he's not just annoyed with the kids. He's, he's in deep, deep sorrow with really no glimmer of hope of his circumstances changing. And yet, verse 21, he says, but this... I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Well, what does he call to mind? He, he calls to mind who God is. The reality this morning that some of us are here, and, and you would say, Chris, I'm, I'm living a season of life like verses 1 through 20. That you're in a season of life of just pain and sorrow and suffering with really no glimmer of hope of your circumstances changing. 
probably asking the questions, Lord, how much longer? God, what's the point of this? God, what are you doing in my circumstances? And I just want to pastorally encourage you before we dive into verses 21 through 33, notice the war that's going on in the mind here. He says, but this I call to mind. And if you're in a season where verses 1 through 20 kind of describe what you're going through, I just want to exhort you to win the battle in your mind. Win the war that's going on in your mind to reflect on the beauty of who God is. Win the battle of rehearsing truth of God's faithfulness, of his goodness, of all the promises that are yours because you are a child of God. Win that battle. Preach to yourself. Remind yourself, rehearse truth of who God is. You've got to win that battle. You have to call to mind who God is. And so what does he call to mind? What does he refer to when he says this? Well, what I want to take us through for the rest of our time this morning is that recalling to mind who God is results in three things in our lives, that three things are produced. So here's the first one. Recalling who God is produces hope. Produces hope. Verses 21 through 24 says this. It says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Recalling who God is in the midst of suffering produces hope. That this section provides a significant transition from stating the extreme hardships of the past to confessing God's great faithfulness. You can kind of think of this section like the camera is like zooming in on what he's going through. zooming in on something extremely important. There's this incredible shift that starts to happen in verse 21 as he pivots from unpacking his sorrow and suffering and he starts to recall who God is. You should almost feel this hard pivot as he introduces and unpacks hope for the very first time. And he says in verse 21, but this I call to mind. Well, what is this that he's referring to? What what is he talking about? I would argue that the this that he's talking about is the foundation of his hope. That the this that he refers to is something that he unpacks in the next couple of verses, something that I'll talk about in a moment, that serves as four anchors of truth. That the this gives birth to hope as he, as he recalls God's great faithfulness. And before we get to those pillars of truth, I, I just want to say that this hope that he's talking about is not the kind of hope that we see in Disney movies. It's not the kind of hope that just because you have hope in Jesus that you're going to live a pain-free life. That just because you have hope in Jesus, it doesn't mean that you're going to live a trial-free life. Or you pray a simple prayer and all of your pain goes away. No, the hope that he's talking about here is that even when you're going through a circumstance in life in which there's no hope of it changing, that you're still okay because it attaches you to the God who's behind your pain. This hope connects you and links you to the God that's actually driving the trial that you're going through. That this hope says, 
God, I'm going through pain. I'm going through a time of darkness, but I'm okay because you are with me. That's the hope that he's talking about. And so what is this that he's referring to? Well, I want to point out four anchors of truth that form the foundation of his hope. Number one, his love and mercy never cease. Verse 22, the first anchor here gives birth to hope is the reality that God's love and mercy never cease. And the Hebrew word for steadfast love is the word hesed, usually translated as mercy or compassion. It refers to God's covenantal love, his deeds of kindness towards his people. In many cases, this word should be understood as God's loyalty in his covenant, that God does what he says he will do. Now, the reason why this is such a significant anchor of truth that produces hope is because if you're like me and you're going through a time of suffering, one of the greatest lies that's so easy to believe is that God's love has given up on you, that God's love has vanished, that God's love and his affection is no longer set upon you. That's one of the easiest lies to believe if you're going through suffering is where is God's love? Has God's love vanished? And yet this proclamation of truth that no, 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 his love never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. Is such a powerful anchor that produces hope. Let me remind you that this is coming from someone who's, who's not laying on the beach somewhere doing his devotions. This is someone who's right in the middle of suffering. He's right in the middle of sorrow with no glimmer of hope that, this is go- that his circumstances is going to change. And yet he says, your love never ceases. Your mercy never comes to an end. What a great reminder for us that if you're going through a time or a season of suffering, of deep, deep sorrow, that even though your circumstances want to convince you that his love has given up on you, his love never ceases. Second anchor of truth that we see here that produces hope is that his mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. That every morning it presents a new opportunity to experience a fresh outpouring of God's great love and mercy. It's interesting to note that the frequent occurrence of mercy or steadfast love with mourning You see this all throughout Scripture, specifically in the Psalms, Psalm 59, Psalm 90, Psalm 92, Psalm 143. And the word new here does not mean something that never existed before, but rather a fresh renewal of what has been experienced before. That each new day, the evidence of God's grace flow from his compassionate nature Each new day dawns with the possibility of trust and even repentance for his people. This opportunity lasts as long as God lasts since it's grounded in his personal and unchanging character. And yet, let me remind us once again that this is coming from someone who is surrounded by darkness. This is not coming from someone who is watching the sun come up, lying on a beach. We so often want to take this verse and almost rip it out of context and and slap it on a coffee mug. And yet the reality is, 
is that his circumstances in his mind may not change. And yet, he declares, your mercies are new every morning. What, what a powerful claim. That this is coming from someone who, in his mind, tomorrow may not even happen. That he may not even see the sun go up tomorrow. And yet he says, your mercy is new every morning. That this is a proclamation of trust and faith in the greatness of God. That whatever happens tomorrow, if tomorrow happens, that I know that your mercy and your compassion will meet me there. Look, this is a phenomenal anchor that produces hope. And it's a great reminder for us as God's people that we aren't protected or shielded away from pain. That we're not particularly comfort or, uh, protected from any type of, of suffering or pain in this life. But what we are promised is God's presence during the suffering. That what we are guaranteed is mercy and compassion to persevere during the suffering and during the deep, deep sorrow that we face in this life. That whatever you face tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, that his mercy will meet you there. And that produces hope. The third anchor of truth is that his faithfulness is great. His faithfulness is great. Verse 23b. Faithfulness here refers to God's persistence in his relationship with his people. What a great picture. His steadfast, consistent loyalty. And he says his faithfulness is great. This is another phenomenal truth for us to recall, especially in the midst of sorrow and suffering that produces hope for us. Great is your faithfulness. God is faithful. God will stay true to his promise. And when we recall the reality of God's faithfulness, his perfect track record with his people, that over thousands of years, God has never broken a promise, that God has never gone back on his word. When we recall that, it, it produces hope. It produces a perseverance during the trial and during the sorrow because great is the Lord's faithfulness, that he is trustworthy, that he is true and that whatever we're going through, he will stay there with us. Fourth anchor of truth, the last one here is that he is my portion. Verse 24 it says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. But what does it mean to declare that the Lord is my portion? Well, the term portion here is used in the context of the promised land. It's also used in conjunction with the word inheritance. And in several of the Psalms, it is used as a metaphor for God as the psalmist's highest treasure, where he's clinging to God in the midst of sorrow. You can see that in Psalm 73 and Psalm 142. Don't miss this here. This, this is a declaration that you, O Lord, are enough for me, that you, O God, fulfill my deepest longings, that you, O oh God, you are, what my, you are what my soul satisfies with. This is a great declaration, a, a great proclamation of who God is as the greatest treasure of being our portion and our inheritance. And he's saying that you, O oh Lord, even though I'm going through a dark season of sorrow, my hope is in you. 
My satisfaction is in you. My fulfillment is in you. It's not in my circumstances changing. It's not in my, in my questions being answered. It's not in my pain going away. My hope, my portion is in you. This was so convicting for me as I was reading this and studying this. I find myself almost idolizing a pain-free life. I almost idolize a, a trial-free life, a life without sorrow. I almost find myself wanting a pain-free life more than I want God himself. And yet what he's claiming here is even in the midst of sorrow, my hope is not in my pain going away. It's not in my circumstances changing. It's in God. That God and God alone satisfies my soul. So how about you this morning? Do you struggle with, with idolizing a pain-free life more than your pursuit of the Lord? Does he satisfy your deepest longings? And all four of these anchors of truth, they're, they're used almost in such a way for us to stand back and just be in awe of God's dependability, that he's trustworthy, that he's true, it's almost like our mouths should just be dropped to the floor. Of like, oh my goodness, God, you are so good. You are so faithful. Your love will never, never end. And that produces hope when we recall who he is. Well, not only does recalling who God is produce hope, but recalling who God is produces a posture of expectant trust. A posture of of expectant trust. Look with me, verses 25 through 30. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. I want to point out here in this passage, and specifically verses 25 through 27, that each sentence begins in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for good, that the Lord is good to those who wait for him. It is good that one should wait patiently. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. Do you notice the connection between waiting on the Lord and how it is good for one to wait on the Lord. And what we learn here in verses 25 through 27 is that recalling who God is creates in us a resolve to depend upon the Lord. That we see a posture that is formed when we recall the trustworthiness of God, his unceasing love and mercy and his great faithfulness. Look with me at verse 28, the, the phrase there, sit alone in silence. It's not... It's not a literal silence, but he's recommending an attitude of expectant trust. The posture is described of waiting upon the Lord, waiting quietly but expectantly, hoping and waiting for the Lord and his salvation. It's this, this lean-in posture that the Lord will come through, the Lord will come through, the Lord will come through. Verse 29, let him put his mouth in the dust. This describes this act of submission to God. Submission, waiting patiently, an expectant trust, this lean-in posture to God's faithfulness. 
And I think what we can see in this passage is that there's a, there's a particular posture of the heart that's created when we recall who God is. And it really begs the question of what does the posture of your heart and your soul look like when you're going through deep sorrow? What is the shape of your heart and your soul as you go through suffering? Does the posture of your soul look something like this, where it's almost accusing God? It's almost using this negative way of, God, this isn't fair. God, how much longer do I have to endure this? Almost doubting if God knows what he's doing. Is your posture more of, of, of one that says, okay, God, I'll get through this, but you owe me after this. God, you better bless me after this. Or is the posture of your soul one that's being described here as this expectant trust in the Lord, this, this lean-in posture to God's faithfulness, the type of posture that says, God, I'm going to stay in this trial as long as you want me to be in here because I know that you're producing good from it. I know that you're getting glory from this. So God, I'm going to trust you. It's this expectancy. It's this leaning into God's faithfulness, not leaning away. I think that's what this passage is driving at. And this posture is created when we remember and we meditate on the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord. It creates a healthy posture, a, a posture of dependency and submission to the Lord even during the sorrow. Well, not only does recalling who God is produce hope, not only does it produce a posture of expectant trust, but recalling who God is produces belief that he will not abandon us. Look at verse 31, 32, and 33. It says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Recalling who God is produces a belief that God will not abandon us. This is an amazing truth. This is an amazing thing to recall, especially in the midst of sorrow. And the four there in verse 31 is used to further explain why we should wait upon the Lord and trust in him during suffering. It's because God will not cast off his people forever. That there will be an end to God's judgment. There will be an end to the pain and suffering that we face. That recalling who God is enables us to be reminded that God will not abandon his people. Look, once again, we are reminded of God's compassion that according to his steadfast love in verse 32, that God will not leave us. Verse 33, we're told, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. What does this mean? Well, he knows that based on who God is, that everything that he's going through it's not because God enjoys this. It's not because God enjoys afflicting his people. And he knows that there's, there's hope because compassion will not only follow the grief, but compassion is driving it. That the Lord, the God of compassion, is behind the pain. That's exactly what the discipline of lament helps us understand of, of what, better yet, who 
is behind the sorrow, what's underneath what we're going through and what the further trajectory of what we're going through is like. That he knows that the circumstances around him are being used. And even in some instances, they're being used to cause us to repent. That's something that he alludes to in verse 40. And that is why he can claim that God will not abandon his people forever. Look, this is so important for us to, to remember. This is so crucial for us to remember, to recall, to meditate that God will not abandon his people. And the reason why that's the case is because more than anything, the temptation for us when we go through pain is to believe that God has abandoned us. It's to believe that, that God has left us to ourselves. I mean, haven't you asked that question when you've gone through suffering? God, where are you? God, where did you go? And yet this is a great reminder that God will not cast his people off forever. God will not abandon us. And we know on, on this side of the cross, we know that truth to be, to be real. We know that, that God promises never to leave us, never to forsake us. And we know that that's true because of what Jesus went through. That Jesus on the cross was abandoned. That he was forsaken in order for us never to be abandoned, in order for us never to be forsaken, Jesus on the cross endured the punishment that we should have went through. That he became sin for us. The father turned his face away. So the hymn goes, he experienced abandonment so that we don't have to. And if you're here this morning and, and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian the reality is that verse 31 is not true for you. The reality is, is that if you don't have your faith in Jesus, your saving faith upon work in the person of Jesus Christ, that your trajectory of your life is, is eternal abandonment from God. And chapter 3 of what he has described is just a small, tiny glimpse of what eternity will look like if you don't place your faith in Jesus. And so my plea for you this morning, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if your faith isn't on Jesus, I plea with you to, to consider Jesus today. To consider Jesus, to turn from your sin, to put your faith upon the work of Jesus Christ, what he has done for you on the cross that he has saved you from your sin if you trust in him so that verse 31 will be true of you, that he will not abandon you to consider Jesus this morning. And even for those of us who are believers today, for, for those of us who are Christians, my plea for us is to recall who God is. That if you're going through a season of suffering a season of pain, or you're, you're experiencing maybe guilty suffering for, for things that you've done in your life, to recall who God is, that God's love never ceases, that his faithfulness is great, that he will never abandon you. And that perhaps this morning, that if you're going through great sorrow, I wonder if, if part of the pain that you're experiencing this morning is not just because of the circumstances that you're facing with, but but it's because you're failing to recall who God is. That you're failing to recall 
God's faithfulness and God's great love for you. And so my, my challenge for you this morning, my, my call to action is, is to recall the greatness of the Lord this morning. That if you're going through that type of season, to recall how the Lord has been faithful to you in your life. To recall the greatness of God's character, of his steadfast love for you. So that as you go through suffering, you have hope. As you go through suffering, you have this expectancy of God's, God's going to come through for me. That as you recall who God is, that you have this, this belief and this trust that God will not abandon me. And so as we, as we close this morning, we, we have a couple more songs that we want to sing, and we've got just a, an opportunity for, for you to respond this morning. And just, just a call to action to remember, to recall, to meditate, to think about the faithfulness of the Lord. And so as you walked in, you took a seat. Hopefully you have two pieces of, of paper there. And, uh, and what we want you to do in response to the greatness of God is, is during these last two songs, we just want you to, to meditate and to recall God's faithfulness. I want to ask you just to write down how the Lord has been faithful to you in your life. And what we want to do is we want you to, to write that down on both of those cards that you have. And, and we want you to keep one of those cards just for you to recall, for you to, to meditate that maybe you're not going through a season of sorrow right now, but, but you will. And so you can pull that card back out of, of reminding and recalling God's faithfulness to you. And then with the other card, what, what we want you to do is is we want you to place that card on, on one of these four walls that you see on the sides. And there's clothespins that you can use. There's sticky tack that you can use to, to put on the wall. And we, what we want is we just want to be in awe of God's faithfulness. We, we want to be able to stand back and look at 350 or 400 cards on these walls and just say, God is so incredibly faithful. And we learned in the first week that that to lament has a communal effect to it. It has this, we're in this together and we're here and, and you, might, you may not remember God's faithfulness, but someone else does and it, and it can help you recall the greatness of the Lord. And so during these last couple songs, you can, you can stay seated, you can stand and sing, but we want you just to meditate on how the Lord has been faithful to you and put it on one of these walls. So I'm going to pray and then, uh, and then when I pray, um, you can start writing on those cards. We've got pens on the tables on the side uh, for you to use. So let's pray together. God, we do thank you for your word. God, we give you thanks that your word is heavy, that your word is, is real, that it speaks to real situations that we go through in this life. God, we're amazed how incredibly relevant your word is. And God, we thank you for Lamentations 3, for the reminder that you are faithful. God, that your love never ceases. God, that your mercies are new every morning. God, to give you praise for the challenge of recalling who you are. Because God, we are a people that is so easy to forget your faithfulness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use these last few moments together. God, would you 
Use your word. Use the singing. Use the practice of remembering to comfort us. God, to recall your great faithfulness. We'll give you thanks and praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.